Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Susky. Today, I'm thrilled to be in person at Blade headquarters with Will Hayburn, CFO Blade. Andrew, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I couldn't be more excited. I've been an admirer of the company for quite some time. And to see all of the growth, especially after the IPO, it's been really exciting from the outside looking in. So I'm very excited to hear an inside perspective and get to know you better and discuss being a public company CFO for the first time, your career, athletics and undergrad, and how you came to where you are today. So would love to learn a little bit more about your first roles after school and how to bring those lessons from being an investor over to being a CFO. Sure. That's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, me, me and we'll start where I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, because a lot of what I bring with me to, to all my jobs, just from the fact that since kind of third grade, I've been getting in a swimming pool before school, after school, multiple times my whole life. And so grew up in Louisville swimming in a hollowed out rock quarry that they had put two concrete piers on to measure out 50 meters and freezing cold. We swim there every summer. But that lake, as we called it, produced three Olympians, not me, <laughs> but, but three of the folks that I grew up swimming went on to, to go to the Olympics. And I ended up swimming all four years in, in college. And that kind of discipline, uh, I really give all the credit to being able to do everything that I ended up doing professionally, because a, a lot of it is just about being able to get through the tunnel and you start a night thinking back to my first job at Mollison Company when I was doing restructuring work. And this was after having spent most of college reading and writing about the Cold War. So suffice it to say, I had very little working knowledge of finance in my first job. But you get given a task at 7 p.m. and you don't know how to do it. And, and you have until 9 a.m. to both learn that new thing and get it done. And, and so being able to kind of barrel through and also use the resources of the people around you, you know, your, your teammates, whether it was on the swim team or whether it was the folks that I worked with at, at Molus or any other job, being able to use those folks to help get you through leverage some of their experience and knowledge. That's what helped me get from zero to one in terms of understanding the language and, and the world of finance. So, so, you know, Molus was just an incredible experience for me. And a reputation for working people pretty hard, but that's kind of exactly what I wanted and frankly, what I thought that, that I needed. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a blur, but you pop out the other end and you really understand deeply, particularly because of the restructuring work, which is a little bit more detailed in terms of the modeling, in terms of how do you tweak the strategy to take a company that's maybe not working and, and had it work. Spent most of my two years there working on the American Airlines bankruptcy. And it's just... The first introduction to these are all the building blocks of the business. These are the inputs and the outputs, things that you can actually change in terms of the way that this team is going to run the business to make it go from not working to, to working. And that was just an incredible jump start into my career. You mentioned that you studied the Cold War in undergrad. What was the inspiration for that? And how does that translate to some of the other things you worked in the investing world after school? I'm not sure it translates to anything, <laughs> but, but it was just always very interesting to me, not to digress, but believe it or not, the global distribution system hmm. that airlines still use, Sabre, learned about this in school because it was originally developed by IBM. It was called Sage, and it was not to book airline flights. It was to dispatch American fighter jets 
and get them vectored to intercept Soviet bombers. And that same code that IBM originally developed for the government was then evolved into the booking system that you still see gate agents use today. And so it gives you a sense of the sometimes glacial pace of evolution in aviation when you see your gate agent is pressing F7, F7. Why are they doing that? You know, it's because that's the same software from tens of years ago, built for some totally different purpose. That's really interesting. But that is the only lesson (laughs) from the Cold War that seems to be applicable to our current job. Well, you must have had some incredible coaches and mentors along the way early in career and, you know, also athletically. Are there any of those mentors that you still have today? The CFO network is from this podcast and elsewhere, strengthening and growing deeper. But outside of that, curious as to some of the lessons that maybe you gleaned early on. Yeah, look, there's people every stop on the way, continuing on the career path after Molus went into public credit investing and worked with an incredibly smart group of people at Oak Hill Advisors. And the thing I loved about credit investing, it's so pure. Hmm. People just want to get to the right answer. You're looking at so many different companies. It's all about, are these guys going to make money? How does the business work? And I remember my first couple of meetings with portfolio managers at Oak Hill, and I was thinking, hey, I built the model and here's what the model says. And it was never about what spit out on the other end of the model. It was always about how do they make money? Okay, these guys are a metals company and they're purifying some specific type of metal. How do they do that? What's the actual process? Okay, so you float it and then there's things that have different buoyancy and that's how they wanted to understand how the business worked before you got into any financial questions. Mm. And it's helped me reframe the way you think about it because that's the way every investor thinks about it. They're like, show me the nuts and bolts of the business. What are the units? How much do you pay for them? How much can you sell them for? And ultimately, is this going to scale and, and return money to me? And, and that's the way that credit investors always think. And then I kind of got a great opportunity to go into Redbird Capital. Jerry Cardinal has been an incredible mentor to me, still is. Redbird's one of Blade's biggest investors. And Jerry took that to the next level because at Redbird, everybody had a habit of building companies from scratch. Hmm. If we had a view on something, and I was lucky enough to get to work on a few of these, where, for example, you, you saw an opportunity in the dry bulk shipping market. Maybe you didn't see a company you wanted to buy. Doesn't matter. Let's build it from scratch. And that was, that was such a fun experience for me because the CEO, two doors down the hall, right there in the office of Redbird. And, and we just started buying ships. Did the same thing with, with quick serve restaurants, buying a bunch of Burger Kings and Church's Chickens and, and building a company. And it was just the best education to really focus and see those building blocks live. And and that's what kind of gave me the bug of knowing at some point I wanted to go and and focus on just one company, get in the weeds and and really think about how do you be the person that's influencing the outcome here Mm. in terms of creating that return for investors? How do you think about maybe a framework of uh, reference? When I think about my days, not in swimming, but rowing, you spend years and years for you know, a few seconds of change and growth and difference. So there are years that are dedicated to uh, hard work that makes marginalized difference, but over a long period of time, you're outperformed and you're in a unique league of your own. How do you balance you know, long-term and short-term thinking in terms of progress and goals 
maybe it's a framework you adopted from swimming. Maybe it's completely different in your mind as an investor. Maybe it's even different as you report out to investors now and to the board. Well, I, I think you just touched on it there. You got to start with the goal. You can't start with the, the individual steps. You got to work backwards from the goal. And so if you, you wanted to make your time better in swimming, it's not one individual 5 a.m. practice that's going to get you there. Just, you know what you have to do. And I think in the job I'm in now, it, it's the same thing. You always want to start with what's our overall strategy? What, what are we trying to deliver back to our investors? And then you have to design that common scoreboard and language and framework for your team, for everybody that you work with, all, all your partners in the company, so that everyone's speaking the same language and is ultimately when they're making the thousands of daily decisions that, that everybody makes, they're making ones that are going to get that result that, that your investors want. And it may not happen for years, maybe a real process. But if you don't start with where are we trying to get, it's easy to put dashboards in place and, right. and, and, and put reporting in place that it's not aligning everybody towards the right path. And so always try to think about it the same way and, and the day-to-day -day can be a little painful. You're not going to get that instant gratification, particularly as a public company. If we have a great day yesterday, stock's not going to go up. You, you don't get that instant gratification. If I have a great workout and swimming, my time's not going to be better the next day. It might be worse, right? <laughs> but you just have to know that you're doing the right thing. You're aligned on the strategy. And if you deliver that long-term objective, folks are going to appreciate that, that you did what you said you were going to do. Absolutely. So that's tasks and daily operations. One of the things I think about in terms of instilling culture is not just what we're doing, but how we're going about doing it. And curious if it was athletics that gave you a mindset of what a great, being a great teammate looks and feels like in practice, or if you have adopted any other cultures here at Blade. Culture can be set from top down, it can be set from bottom up, and every organization is a little bit different. But I'm curious as to what you would define as a, a healthy culture and what you bring to Blade in that regard. We're very direct here, which I think helps a lot. Try to be direct with our communication with each other. Try to be fact-based. Try to essentially not leave anywhere to hide. And if you look at our office, it's an open floor plan. That transparency ultimately leads to better decisions. Mm. And, and as, as much as possible, trying to take some of the emotion out of it and try to focus on, okay, What's our goal? You know, ultimately, you know, we're a public company, we got investors. It's, it's probably a longer term financial goal, but what's our goal? And is the decision you're making going to help us get there? Imagine this was $100 of your own money. If you're investing in whatever it might be, say it's the latest uh, customer acquisition opportunity right. in, in marketing. If you could put your own $100 into that and you would get all the profit we made from every customer we acquired, would you do that? If the answer is yes, then great. Back up the truck. Let's do that all day long. If, if the answer is no, or maybe, maybe let's unpack that a little bit more. And so I think the best thing you can do is make investment decisions, all these small little decisions every day that you would make with your own money. If people are thinking that way, you're going to end up with a great result. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about how you came to Blade and we're interested in uh, the aviation space in general. Maybe talk a little bit about the growth and growth opportunities that you see. I know the company has changed a lot and grown a lot over the last few years. I know there's probably a ton of value to listeners who are trying to unpack and think about 
the next five years as to how they're going to grow their businesses in big technological shift. And then as you've entered new markets, I'd love to unpack your entry point at Blade and go through some of the growth pain points and big successes along the last five going on six years for you. Yeah, look, I, I've always loved aviation since I was a little kid. I actually had an uncle who ran the, the air show in Louisville and was a documentary filmmaker. Big focus on Cold War and airplanes mm. and, and things like that. So I grew up, instead of watching cartoons, watching videos of atomic bomb tests that my uncle would bring over and stealth bombers flying and things like that. So I just said, I've always been fascinated by the world of aviation. So it's really fun to both do a job that you like, the nuts and bolts of sitting in a seat, but also getting to do it in an industry that I'd read about anyway. Cool. If, if I didn't have to read about it, I'd still be checking out what's the latest going on in the aviation world. So that's a lot of fun for me. And then the evolution of the company has been really cool because things take some unexpected turns. And the most exciting thing for our business, I think, has been the turn towards medical. We had more scale moving folks vertically in the Northeast than, than any other company. And we had a nice jet charter business as well, coast to coast. And it got to the point that for better or for worse, we had pilots sitting around 24 seven in case somebody picked up the phone and wanted to go to Atlantic City in the middle of the night. And actually it was our CEO who one day had the idea. He said, we got these helicopters in the middle of the night. Why can't we use them for hospitals? Why can't we use them to, to move organs? And you know, initially everyone's like, I don't know, that's gotta be complicated. There's gotta be a bunch of regulatory barriers. We did the work and it actually wasn't that complicated. And we actually had a huge competitive advantage because we were already flying so much that the, the incremental cost to fly a little bit more with an aircraft that was already there was very small. And so we very quickly became the largest transporter of human organs for transplant in the Northeast. Wow. And, and then we realized it wasn't just that functionally we had the aircraft available. It was that we had built the DNA of this company around providing great customer service to people who demand it. Right. <laughs> you know, re remember the business was built on the back of, of flying people who know what good experiences are to, to the Hamptons and back and, and flying them to the airport and to Teterboro to meet their chat. You know, th these are people that are used to, to having things go right. And through a lot of hard work, the team here is able to deliver that experience consistently. I don't need to tell you that healthcare is not known for its customer service. <laughs> so by both having the, the, the right aircraft that were available, but also bringing that ethos, that great customer service DNA, you know, that's what helped us continue to grow and continue to become bigger in that business. And then the very first thing we did after we took the company public and raised $30 million is say, okay, we're great in the Northeast, but we need that national platform. So who are the people? Who are the people running the company that are going to help us go from where we are today to being a coast-to-coast -coast organ transportation provider? We found a fantastic team at Trinity Air Medical. The company was, was doing about $16 million of trailing revenues. We were single-digit millions in our Northeast organ transportation business. That was about two years ago. Our organ transportation business is now run rating close to $130 million a year of wow. revenues close to $14 million a year 
of adjusted EBITDA on a run-made basis. We really were able to crack it open, provide better service, and leverage the fact that we have this passenger business using the same aircraft. And ultimately, in aviation, scale is the most important thing. The more you can fly, the less it costs. And so putting those two businesses together, just it allowed us to go deeper in terms of making commitments to operators for lower prices. It allowed us to have more redundancy. Mm. So the most important thing is you got to get the organ where it needs to go in time. You have very limited time. And we just were in a better position than anybody to put those pieces together and do the little things that people really care about. Remember what that surgeon likes to eat on the way back. Stuff like that matters. And that all comes from our upbringing, if you will, of, of flying really discerning customers. I'm curious if there were key lessons that you grew through during the pandemic. I know private aviation at first shut down, then it became increasingly popular as people wanted to distance themselves from larger groups of people at the airport. I was wondering what were the headwinds and tailwinds coming out of the pandemic. And then being here in person with you is great. I could see people back in the office, which is nice. Yeah. And I'm curious as to how you think about that as a leader on your team, what's necessary, what you learned. I've talked to a lot of CFOs. Some have found this perfect hybrid scenario. Others have demanded everyone come back and the whole mix of what works best for each individual team. So interesting lessons to then figure out what's most effective for each culture and each team. But really interested to know how you continue to measure what mattered, continue to keep the culture, and then continue to you know, be over-communicative. As you mentioned, these are stressful kind of communications with your client bases. And then layering on top of that global pandemic, it must have been uh, an interesting few years for you. There's a, there's a couple of questions in there. The, the first one in terms of how we work, we're, we're in the office five days a week in person. And for me and, and for, for most of the people here, that's an opportunity to learn from each other and conversations that never would have happened, insights you never would have gleaned, you, you do because you're sitting there on the floor with everybody else. And particularly, you know, in my seat, getting grilled by investors every day to explain what's going on, being able to sit there with everyone who's really driving the business. And we go back to those thousands of daily decisions. You just have such higher fidelity mm. in terms of your understanding of what's going on because you ask that little question that, that maybe you wouldn't have asked when you're looking over the results because you can just shout it across the floor right. and get the answer. And so, you know, we're, we're big believers that in-person is just great for collaboration in my career. Being able to pull up a chair in somebody's cubicle has saved my career many times. It's, it's been the difference of showing up at 9 a.m. and not having the thing done versus having the thing done, you know, whatever it is. And so I, I think it's pretty important. And I think if you ask most people here, they enjoy it. You know, it, it, it brings something to their life, uh, kind of a, a work family that maybe wouldn't feel the same way over Zoom every day. And COVID, I think we, we haven't really talked about it, but we're an asset light model. We don't own or operate any aircrafts. We, we use third parties that are highly integrated, that are safety vetted. It's not a marketplace. It's not like you're calling an Uber and somebody has to accept the trip. When we have a flight, we assign it to one of our integrated operators, but it's still really flexible because we don't own those aircraft and we haven't put up the CapEx dollars. And oh boy, were we glad that we had that flexibility during COVID. And it really put in perspective 
for me, thinking about risk management mm -hmm. a little bit of things can happen that are just completely unpredictable. And you got to have that margin of safety, that buffer. And so when we're thinking about the supply side of our business, the aircraft, they're going to fly the organs or fly the people. That's always top of mind in terms of we're going to make some commitments to operators. That's going to get our pricing down. That's going to give us more economies of scale. But we always want to have that buffer. I almost think about it like the power grid a little. You get your base load capacity. These are operators where I'm saying, okay, you're, we're going to fly this many hours a year. We're guaranteeing it to you. And you're going to give us this much lower rate. And then maybe once we fly those hours, you're going to give us an even lower rate. You know, and pilots are going to be here and aircraft are going to be there. You, know, you have a little more opportunity to dictate what you want. And because you're flying so much, actually both parties, the operator and blade can make more money because the more scale you have in aviation, the more efficient it is. But you can't do that for 100% of your flying, right? You know, you can, lots of business models do, but after living through the COVID experience, you need to be able to flex up and down or left and right. And that's what's so attractive, I think, about our business model today is that the majority of the business is organ transportation, which is really non-correlated with the overall economy. You know, the passenger business is to some degree, but because it's a common asset base across the two businesses, there's nothing special about the helicopter that's going to fly a heart for NYU. It, it could also fly you to the airport. And, and so it allows us to move that capacity easily if we need to back and forth. And it just makes the business less risky. Hmm. And, and you know, that's probably the biggest lesson of COVID because before living through that, the thought goes into your head, wow, if I just had dedicated contracts for 100% of the flying we're doing, my margins would be a little bigger. And then you see the passenger business <laughs> during COVID get decimated there temporarily. You're like, okay, that's why you don't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's really helpful. I always say during the podcast, if people want to just hit that back 30 seconds a couple of times, that is something they should uh, take heed of. One of the things I really want to talk to, and I get questions about this from my network of CFOs, is the public company CFO for the first time. It's already a fairly exclusive group of folks who are CFOs at public companies, but public companies also tend to hire folks who have already been public company CFOs. So the pool of people who are typically considered is fairly small. So breaking through that, I'm really curious if there are lessons that you're willing to share from you know, the first IPO. I know that you've done other transactions being an investor in the past, but you know, living through uh, that IPO experience, are there lessons, things that you learned along the way of going through that yourself, whether it's just make sure you're hitting your workouts so you can be you know, super sharp throughout that process? Or I know transactions typically take twice as long as you'd like and can be fairly painful, but you know, public markets can really be an interesting place to continue to grow. So I'm really interested in any lessons you may be willing to share for uh, folks who are looking for their first public CFO role? First off, it's getting to speak with these really smart investors all the time is so great. Getting different perspectives from people who are seeing all sorts of different business models and they're asking these really tough questions. They've done the work. It makes you better. And some people end up investing, some people don't, but that's the most awesome thing for me has been that. And you get a lot of ideas from these folks too. Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? This doesn't make sense to me. Why would you have done that? Right. They can be pretty tough on you. 
but it's great because it's just always pushing you up the curve a little bit. That's one of the things I enjoy the most. What I'd say in terms of the adjustment though, is it's just this added layer of complexity about what you can say. Mm. And, and so you, you actually have to think a couple of steps ahead about what you want to be able to talk about because you have to make sure those are those metrics are out there in a reg FD approved setting or you can't talk about it. Right. And and so it's really important to get a sense from your investors of what they want you to talk about. You'll get some questions that maybe you can't answer because you haven't put that information out there yet. And so then you always have to be thinking, all right, I'm, I want to say this on the earnings call or put that in this script because I know investors want to know the answer or they want a little more granularity on that. And then some of the things that, that you put out there have a shelf life. You, know, you can't just keep repeating guidance over and over. So it's just this layer of awareness that you always have to have about what you're allowed to say and when. That's probably the biggest complexity of it. But to some degree, it's kind of a fun puzzle. <laughs> you know, you, you have to sort of keep all of that in mind. It's harder, but you have to pay really close attention and you have to be really intentional about the things that you're saying. And so I, I think you end up being a little more focused and that's probably okay. But it is sometimes some of the rules, you're just thinking to yourself, okay, this is sort of, why can I only talk about this for two weeks? Why, why is that? But you know, the rules are the rules. So you always got to be keeping that top of mind. I'm just thinking about all that's going on at OpenAI right now. And most folks are just pulling apart their governance and all of these relationships. And curious if the relationships with investors or the board has how those relationships have strengthened over the years in your mind, or maybe just comments on how to maintain just transparency with uh, the board before they're making decisions. I know Sam Altman was accused of not being candid and transparent, and that could have had something to do, although all of this is still developing. I'm sure we'll find out more, but are there any kind of best practices for really healthy board relationships or investor relations that you've seen work well? Look, I think, I think it goes back to the transparency. Yeah. And for me, the guy that, that Redbird has on the board, yeah, I used to work for him at Redbird. So it's old hand for him to beat me up a little bit, whether or not something makes sense. But that's great. You want people to be comfortable challenging and asking for more information. And so I think that level of comfort of digging into the weeds and, and pushing back on decisions or pushing back on analyses and saying, hey, what about thinking about this way? Or what about that way? Or why did you do this? Is that a fair assumption? So in a way, having that level of comfort to the point that you can be direct, I think is the best thing for getting to the right outcome. You know, I don't, I, I, governance is a big word. I, I don't know exactly what we mean when we talk about governance, but I think if we're all trying to get to the right outcome, the, the outcome that's going to make a great return for our investors, the, the best thing that can get you there is to have people challenging you the same way your investors are challenging you. And in a way, some of the most important governance you have in a public company is those investor meetings you have after every quarter, right? You know, where, where they say, okay, heard you said this sort of buried in the script a little bit. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Right. You know, that's, that's really where you get some of the course corrections and pushback. And I think that's great because ultimately they can vote with their dollars and, and you, you'll see it. If, if you're not delivering what they want you to deliver, if you're not justifying the investments you're making, you're going to get upset. I want to zoom out a little bit and think about some of the big tectonic 
shifts in technology that are occurring right now. And just thinking through, you mentioned earlier how outdated some of the uh, technology is in the aviation world. What are some of the uh, frameworks you're using to evaluate new technologies, whether it's just internally or uh, things you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, look, I it's making me think to one of your your questions before we started recording of kind of what's underestimated today. Mm. You know, I think whether this is a framework or not, but translating something from a spreadsheet to reality is really hard. <laughs> it's it's so when we're evaluating new technology or we're evaluating a new opportunity, having a, a healthy dose of skepticism because it's pretty easy to disrupt any business in Microsoft Excel if, if, if you want to do it. So you, you can build that model. And I think for a business like ours, where you have to deliver a service in the real world, not the World Wide Web, the real world, that gap between Excel and, and what's actually going to happen in real life and, and practicality is pretty huge. And so one of the areas we spend a ton of time evaluating and we think it's going to be a huge boost to our business over time is the transition to electric flight. And that's where we have to be a little bit self-critical in terms of how are drones going to get approved to move organs? How are electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft mm. going to be suitable to move passengers to the airport or, or somewhere else? You know, what's that process going to look like and how much is it going to cost? And so we've been pretty intentional about how we built the business and that everything we do, the unit economics makes sense with conventional aircraft technology. You know, the, the flight profit is there today and the growth is there today. And so it gives you that margin of safety that you need for an untested technology because electric flight is not out there yet. It's not being used commercially to move passengers at scale or anything like that. And so it gives us the confidence to say, actually, th this equipment should work in our business. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to cut the cost in half on day one, maybe over time for sure. But on day one, it can make sense in our business. And for us, talking about electric flight specifically, the most important thing is that it's quiet. Because mm. if you can fly quietly, you're going to be able to fly to more places. But that's where when we're evaluating this, we, we try to be pretty sober about what are the use cases going to be? Because there's always something you're missing in the spreadsheet. <laughs> there's always a line you should have put in. There's always an assumption that's a little bit too aggressive. And so we really try to think, at what are the things that we're missing? What are the costs that are hidden? What are the factors that are only going to come to light once you're actually flying this new aircraft in the real world? And the great news for our business is because we've set it up to work with much more expensive aircraft that, that run on jet fuel, right. you know, we think it's a prime candidate, if not the best candidate, to start utilizing electric vertical aircraft as soon as they're available. But we always have that healthy dose of skepticism when we're taking a look at the Excel spreadsheet and figuring out, okay, how is this actually going to work when we start flying? Very cool. One of the last things I want to talk about today is your personal definition of what makes a modern CFO, uh, some of those characteristics. And I was just listening to another podcast from Graham Weaver. I don't know if you are familiar with Alpine Investors, but gave this great Sanford speech on how to live an asymmetric life of waking up and choosing to do hard things, doing hard things for a decade, 
doing things you love and what uh, constitutes in his mind as an asymmetric life. I was thinking those characteristics are so consistent of so across so many of the CFOs I've spoken to. So really interested in you know, your personal definition and characteristics that define you know, a modern CFO. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Just start with the goal. Start with where you want to get and then work backwards from there and, and help develop partnering with everybody you work with, that scoreboard and that language that's going to allow everyone to communicate in such a way that they're achieving that long-term goal. It's really easy to get lost in the short term and you'll never get to your ultimate goal if, if you don't start from where you want to be. And for us here at Blade, I'm very lucky that, that everybody I work with is just fantastic and truly interested in the goal and truly interested in it and what are the numbers I should be looking at? What are the metrics that, that I should be thinking about when running that individual business that's my responsibility? Everyone is so interested and focused and excited to engage on that front. And, and that to me is the most important thing, giving folks the tools that they need to make the right one of a thousand daily decisions that ultimately in a year or two, give us that result that we want. But you can't do that unless you're really collaborating with everybody. And that's it goes back to some of your other questions of why we think it's important to be in the office five days a week and why we think it's important to sit this close to your colleagues because you're just going to learn something every single day. And that's to me one of the best metrics of success. If you're still learning, then things are good. That's great. That's one of my favorite answers today. So I appreciate that. If I wanted to spend some time getting to know the company, if I wanted to experience Blade for the first time, or if I wanted to get in touch with you, how would I go about doing that for, for the listeners? I know there's a Blade app, there's flyblade.com, and you're on LinkedIn as well. Yep. All, all those things are right. I would encourage anybody who's coming in or out of New York, JFK or Newark, to try the airport product. You can use my little promo code, WillH, and that'll give you a, a discount on your first flight to or from the city. It starts at 195 so you're not talking about a lot of money to start. And uh, you can go to ir.blade.com. If you want to see our investor presentation, learn a little bit more about what the long-term goals are, how we're growing the medical business and the passenger business and how they're feeding off of each other. And, uh, you know, really appreciate the, the opportunity to speak to you today. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to get to meet you. It's incredible to be here in the offices in New York, and I look forward to staying in touch. This has been another excellent episode of the Modern CFO podcast. Stay in touch. And thank you again. Thanks, Peter.